The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My tendency is to convict Rhodes on seditious conspiracy. We're just, there's just overwhelming evidence of uh, his palaver in that vein. He calling for civil war, bloody revolution, and uh, that continues even after January 6th. Uh, he spends another $20,000 on firearms between January 6th and January 20th when he's back in Texas. And at least one, and I, I don't know if the jurors will understand this, but at least one of the co-conspirators who's not indicted named Joshua James goes back to Texas with him. And so I think the conspiracy continues with Joshua James, and I would, I would convict him of that. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 23rd, 2022. For the last 29 days, Roger Parloff, Lawfare Senior Editor, has been sitting in on the Oath Keeper trial in Washington. You may have seen his live tweeting. It has been among the very best coverage of the trial But the trial is now done, the jury has the case, and Roger joined me in the Virtual Jungle studio to talk about the whole case. Which charges are likely to stick? Which ones seem weak? How did the various defendants do when they took the stand to defend themselves? And what kind of verdict do we expect? when the jury eventually comes back. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 23rd, Roger Parloff with Oath Keeper Closing Arguments. So Roger, uh, let's start with, for those who haven't listened to any of our prior Oath Keepers updates or podcasts, now that it has gone to the jury, just give us the briefest of overviews of what this trial is about and who the defendants are. Yeah. Remember, the, the, the Oath Keepers were the group that became a sort of a symbol of the insurrection. They are the paramilitary group that scaled the East Capitol steps at some point, and you can see the crowd sort of parting for them, and they're all in military uniform. They all have their right hand on the right shoulder, 
of the cadre in front of them, and they go up the steps and into the Capitol. And just to be clear, that's the way we move at Lawfare, right? Whenever, <laughs> whenever exactly. the group of us go somewhere, it's always in stack formation in military outfits. As you insist. Correct. Yeah. And so on its face, that looked conspiratorial to those that uh, of a skeptical eye. And um, in addition, it turned out that they had an arsenal across the river at the Comfort Inn in Boston, which is uh, Arlington County, about 10 minutes away, and several arsenals, in fact. And they had another in Vienna, Virginia. So all of that looked suspicious, and they have been charged. About 25 Oath Keepers have been charged, but the five involved in this case are sort of the creme de la creme as the prosecutors look at them, and they're considered leaders, and they were charged with seditious conspiracy. About 12 Oath Keepers were charged with seditious conspiracy, three pled guilty, and nine are in this indictment, but the U.S. courthouse in D.C. doesn't have a court that can accommodate nine defendants, so the first five are on trial. And they are charged with seditious conspiracy among other charges. What are the lesser charges, and how much of what turned out to be a very long trial did you sit through? Uh, I'll answer the second part first. I sat through all but about two hours of cross-examination of one FBI agent. So I saw a lot of it. It was 29 days. And I also saw some of the uh, jury selection. But there are 10 counts and there are five defendants. All five are charged with three conspiracies. Seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy to prevent congressmen from discharging their duties. And then all five are also charged with the substantive count of obstructing, uh, corruptly obstructing an official proceeding, either directly or aiding and abetting. All five are charged with destruction of federal property as a felony, and that's also by aiding and abetting. That has to do mainly with the front doors uh, on the East Capitol's East doors, the East Rotunda doors and the Columbus doors, which suffered damage in the attacks that day. And one defendant, Jessica Watkins, is charged with impeding police officers during a civil disorder. That's not quite assaulting police officers, but it's close. It's sort of, she participated in a mob scene and inside one of the corridors leading to the Senate chamber uh, where uh, the mob tried to push past a battalion of riot police. And then finally, four of the five are charged with sort of conventional obstruction of justice by deleting files from their phones. So you have now watched the entire trial, including the presentation of the prosecution's case, the presentation of the defense, and the closing arguments. 
Before I ask you the key question of the entire episode, which is, how would you vote if you were a juror? I want to remind the audience, we've talked about this before, about what the essential defense is, because the defendants don't uh, deny that they ran into the Capitol in stack formation in an imitation of the way lawfare personnel move. They don't deny that there was a lot of texting that sounds kind of at least adjacent to seditious conspiracy. And they don't deny that there was a large cache of weapons across the the uh, river in Virginia. So before we go into who in juror uh, Parloff's uh, mind should prevail in this case, remind us what the defense looks like here. The key defense is no plan and therefore no conspiracy. And that is a non-trivial defense. It's surprising, but it's basically conceded that there was never, for instance, any plan about any concrete plan. How were they going to stop Biden from taking power? How were they going to stop the certification of the election? There was a lot of very specific, seditious, we can say that unquestionably, talk in their signal chat, you know, we need to stop Biden from taking power. He's a Chinese communist puppet. We'll, our lives will be over if, if he takes power. But there's never any plan about how they're going to do that. And that leaves them open to the, possi- the defense, the claim, a credible claim that these are just old guys venting This is hyperbole, this is bravado, but there's no plan. And uh, that's a difficult question. And and of course, what happens on January 6th is other people, other rioters, the Proud Boys and others, reach the Capitol, and then there they are, they're on a security, you know, they do these personal security details, that's ostensibly what they do. They protect people like you know, General Flynn and Roger Stone and Alex Jones and lesser people. And they protect, you know, the crowd members from Antifa, who uh, they claim, uh, you know, comes out at night and uh, uh, hurts Trump supporters as they try to return to their hotels. So they're there. And then, you know, somebody else breaches the Capitol and they, like 900 other people that day, decide to go in. And, um, you know, some say, well, we were hoping to help the police, um, you know, if there were any problems. Uh, uh. So that's sort of the defense. And it turns out it's, it's not a non-trivial defense. You know, the government will say, look, uh, read the jury instructions. We don't need a plan, a specific plan. We There was this, all we need is a mutual understanding and a meeting of the minds. The meeting of the minds was to prevent uh, Biden from taking power. The opportunity presented itself January 6th, and they took it. It was obvious, and they took it. All right. So this is the kind of Proud Boys made me do it defense. 
it only really applies to the seditious conspiracy case or to the other conspiracies alleged, but not to the presence or the, to the, you know, sort of lower level charging into the Capitol when you're not supposed to be there to obstruct an official proceeding. Are they effectively conceding guilt on those charges? No, of course, uh, Rhodes, uh, Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, does not go inside the Capitol. He's out front. And he claims he never gave an order for them to go in. And if you can't get him on conspiracy, then you can't get him on the other things, except destroying documents from his phone. A couple of the defendants claim Jessica Watkins and Tom Caldwell, that when they heard that Pence had betrayed us on the, you know, when people, they heard that in Twitter or, or various places, they thought that meant the certification had already occurred. So they weren't trying to obstruct the certification. They thought it had already happened. They just went into the Capitol to make their voices heard. So that's their position. Remember that if the, going in, if it's not for the purpose of stopping the proceeding or delaying the proceeding, is just trespassing, and they're not really charged with that, that would be the lesser misdemeanor because a lot of, at least four of the five are detained and they've already served more than a year. So a misdemeanor would be meaningless at this point. So, uh, no, they're they're trying to avoid the others. One defendant, Jessica Watkins, the one that for which there is rock crusher evidence that she was impeding the police officers. You have video, you have audio of her saying, push, 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 get in there, get in there. They can't hold us. And then you have video of her going up against the riot police and then you have the riot police body-worn camera video of what that was like to rest. She has admitted on the stand that, yes, she's guilty of that charge. That's the only charge anyone has admitted. All right. So now let's talk to Juror Parloff, who attended the proceedings uh, the whole way through and is very similar to you in all respects except that he didn't hear any of the arguments or material not presented to the jury. He didn't hear anything except what the judge let the jury hear. What does Roger, you know, obviously he goes into the deliberations with an open mind and there are 11 other jurors who might persuade him of things, but what are his instincts going into deliberations about which charges he is inclined to convict on and not convict on based entirely on the evidence as presented and the instructions from the judge, not considering any prejudicial feelings he may have had going in because the judge instructed him to consider only the material presented in court. Yeah, I would probably acquit all of them on the destruction of federal property. Uh, nobody, none of them touched 
the East Rotunda doors. None of them touched the Columbus doors. At least there was no proof. Even on an aiding and abetting theory, I think that one you probably can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. I would, my tendency is to convict Rhodes on seditious conspiracy. We're just, there's just overwhelming evidence of uh, his palaver in that vein. He calling for civil war, bloody revolution, and uh, that continues even after January 6th. Uh, he spends another $20,000 on firearms between January 6th and January 20th when he's back in Texas. And at least one, and I, I don't know if the jurors will understand this, but at least one of the co-conspirators who's not indicted named Joshua James goes back to Texas with him. And so I think the conspiracy continues with Joshua James and I would, I would convict him of that. Uh, in addition, he took the stand, and I would say that the cross-examination by uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Catherine Mercosi was devastating. I would say it demolished him. What other charges do you have uh, strong feelings about what you would do as a juror? I would say that the two toughest defendants are a guy named Ken Harrelson and a guy named Tom Caldwell. Ken Harrelson was not, most of this case is built on signal chat messages. The Oath Keepers used multiple channels of this end-to-end -end encrypted app called Signal. And when they were, uh, when their phones were seized, in most cases, in many cases, these apps were still on their phone and they could recover a lot of these messages. And that's how the case is built. Ken Harrelson didn't have that. Uh, and he wasn't on Twitter. He wasn't on Facebook. He wasn't on Parler. And so there's very little uh, of him ranting and raving. And so he has a good chance of getting off. He did go into the Capitol. But even so, I don't know if you can prove the conspiracies. The other guy is Tom Caldwell. He doesn't go into the Capitol. He's 65. He's a, a Navy veteran colonel, and he's 100% service-related disability. And he is a maniacal talker, storyteller. And he is constantly lying in all forms of social media to his friends, saying incriminating things that he didn't really do, pretending that he went into the Capitol, pretending that he, you know, all of these things that physically he's not really capable of doing. And so, you know, to some extent that fooled the FBI. Now, there are some things he really did, but uh, still, I, I think he has a chance. And he was not technically an oath keeper. He was just a, uh, an affiliate. And so he wasn't on the signal chat. So for those reasons, he has a chance of getting off too. So you're thinking you're really expecting a mixed verdict. Yeah, very much so. Interesting. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. Let's talk about the uh, defendants who took the stand. Uh, There are three of them. How'd they do? You already said Rhodes was Rhodes's cross was devastating. Uh, so let's start there. Uh, how did Rhodes damage himself? So Rhodes, on direct, portrayed himself as something of a constitutional scholar. He went to Yale Law School. He won a prize there. He did not mention that he was later disbarred, but that's that's okay. And then he explained that he had constitutional issues with the way the uh, 2020 election proceeded. He thought it was in violation of the the clause of the Constitution that gives uh, power to the state legislatures to decide how the elections will be run because uh, of all the, the adaptations made for COVID by non-legislators. So he also explained that as a constitutional scholar, he believed that Trump had the power to invoke the Insurrection Act in order to prevent this fraudulent election from proceeding, and that that was basically an unreviewable power, and that he was empowered to call up the Oath Keepers as an unorganized militia to fight on his behalf hence the QRF over at the Comfort Inn, uh, the the, uh, quick reaction force, the arsenal. He also testified that he, on January 6th, he was just minding his own business, doing the personal security details, and uh, he never ordered anyone into the Capitol. And afterwards, when he found out they had gone into the Capitol, he said that that was stupid because that would give their political enemies an opportunity to come after him. And sure enough, that's where we are, as he put it. After direct, and all of this gets very subjective, you know, my personal reaction to his direct even was that I put it on Twitter. I said, uh, he reminded me of someone trying to pick up a 17 year old in a bar. And what I meant was he was macho, he was self-aggrandizing. There were a lot of unverifiable self-promotional anecdotes. I will note that his son, Dakota, then quote tweeted me on Twitter and said, quote, this is the most accurate assessment of Stewart I have ever heard. Uh, 
So I appreciated that. That's very funny. Is Does he have a bad relationship with his son, or does his son approve of picking up 17-year-olds in bars? He seems to have an estranged relationship uh, with his father, uh, Dakota and uh, Stuart. And uh, then on cross, it really got worse because it was very obvious that his qualms with the election were not just abstract issues of constitutionality. He believed in the wildest and most preposterous of fraudulent uh, electional denial theories. He propagated those. Uh, I don't know if you've even heard of hammer and scorecard, but that's a, a uh, this uh, CIA supercomputer that changes votes. He was very much into QAnon. He uh, talked about, uh, you know, he wanted Trump to declassify files so that we could expose the pedophiles at the CIA. He continually called Biden a chai puppet, meaning Chinese communist puppet. And then when it got to all of the seditious ranting in the signal chat, he his defense was that while well, he was talking about the future context, not to prevent the inauguration, but what would happen after the inauguration. And so it was very much tied to the indictment. You know, the indictment charges a conspiracy between November and January. And he was saying, no, it was actually the Civil War would begin a little later. And and Rakosi, uh, the prosecutor, brought this out. And these are my notes, of course. I don't have the transcript. But she said, so the Civil War would be on January 21st and not January 6th, to which he responded, well, not necessarily. And you see, he, that to me, you're, you're really on the defensive at that point when you're conceding that you were advising taking up arms against the United States. You're just quibbling over the date at that point. Exactly, exactly. He admitted down the road we'd have no chance to fight uh, if Trump left office without fixing this. So Rakozi said, you're talking about a call to arms to keep Trump in power. And Rhodes said, I wouldn't want to characterize it like that. <laughs> so I thought these were pretty damaging exchanges. Uh, one thing that was sort of a, a side point, but also not great with the jury was she brought out the fact that, you know, she he was uh, maligning Mitch McConnell. And she said, you couldn't trust Mitch McConnell because his wife was Chinese. And Rhodes said, in part, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not something you want to say in front yeah. of the jury. No, no. And, um, so he had gone to great lengths to, to explain that the Oath Keepers were a highly diverse group. There was no racism. There was no this or that. I think that that undercut that message. The other thing that he had to contend with was there was some evidence, circumstantial evidence, that he may have ordered Megs into the... Uh, Kelly Meggs is the second most important defendant, I would say. He led the Florida Oath Keepers. He leads this 14-person stack into the Capitol. And um, there was some circumstantial evidence 
that Rhodes might have given him an order. And the way that works is this. At 2.31 p.m., the oath keeper that's called the operations leader, Michael Green, calls Rhodes. At 2.32 p.m., while he's on there on the phone, Meggs also calls Rhodes. And then nine seconds later, Rhodes merges the two calls. And so for the next 90 seconds, you have three oath keepers on the phone, 232 to 233. And then Meggs gets off the phone, and two minutes later, he leads 14 oath keepers into the Capitol, 235. So that looks like Rhodes gave an order, go into the Capitol. And on direct, Rhodes did not address this call at all. On cross, he said, well, you know, it was very loud and I could never hear Megs. And so that raises the question, so you couldn't hear him and yet you merged the calls? And he said, yeah, you know, well, I was hoping to, that maybe the call would improve. And then you're on him for 90, with him for 90 seconds and you can't hear him. It's like, hello, Kelly, Kelly, hello, hello. And that all strained credulity for me. But uh, so I think in those respects, he did not help himself. What about the other two who testified? They were very interesting. Jessica Watkins was this woman that she was dead to rights on the impeding uh, charge. So she told a very sympathetic story to a, especially to anybody, but I think especially to a DC jury. She is a trans female. So she was in the army. Somebody found out that she was considering uh, transitioning. It, it was during the don't ask, don't tell period. He confronted her, called her the F word, the longer F word. She was afraid of getting killed. She went AWOL for a couple months in Alaska. And then she turned herself in. She was other than honorably discharged, was how her lawyer brought it out. She was rejected by her parents. She didn't fit in with the trans community, which she found touchy-feely. And, you know, she was still, this is an interesting thing, you know, she was still a macho right wing and she formed her own militia. You can see her not fitting in with many trans communities. And she also hated herself, she said. And so she wanted to put herself in harm's way so that she would die, but it die in doing something meaningful. And so she formed this militia to help with, you know, hurricane relief and various good causes. And then she admitted the uh, count six, the impeding charge, which she sort of had to. And she said she was one of the ones who said that when she'd heard that Pence had betrayed us, she thought that meant the certification was done with. And so she couldn't have conspired to do any of these things. Uh, to to have stopped the certification. So I don't understand. All of this sounds pretty inculpatory, except with respect to that last point. It's more, I did it because I'm, you know, trans and was mistreated and was upset. Not, I mean, maybe it's a 
an, an ameliorative factor, but it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it gets you to acquittal, right? Well, she's conceding the impeding charge, which is a five-year max, but she's contesting the conspiracies, which are twenty-year max. And if she's right about, you know, if she's telling the truth about, I thought the certification was completed when when they said Pence had betrayed us, then, um, you know, uh, that might help her. Things got weirder on Cross um, because she had said things like in her writings, she was recruiting for her own militia as well as for the Oath Keepers. And she would say things like, I need to get you fighting fit by inauguration. And so sort of like Rhodes, she defended that by saying, well, I wasn't talking about preventing inauguration. It was after inauguration where when we would have to fight. And then things get really weird. Right, because once you say that, you're saying the seditious conspiracy I was involved in wasn't to prevent the inauguration. It was a, a much broader, longer term seditious conspiracy than that. That's right. And, and also there's a flip to it with her, which is this. And I, I doubt many readers are or listeners are expecting this. But she thought that, you know, once Biden took power, he would impose mandatory COVID vaccines. And federal officials would refuse to enforce those. And so Biden would call in United Nations troops to enforce his COVID agenda. And she was preparing to fight the UN troops. So she's not preparing to go up against the United States troops. She's preparing to go up against the Biden allied and called in United Nations troops. That's one theory. Another, th and she said she thought that scenario had a one in four chance of occurring. Scenario two was that the Chinese were going to have a joint military exercise with the Canadians on the Canadian border with 80 to 90,000 Chinese troops on the Canadian border. And she was afraid they would invade into Chicago or across the Niagara River. And she said these scenarios were being described on right-wing media, and, and she, she thought there was a 50-50 chance of this scenario. So again, she would be fighting the Chinese, not the United States. So you have that. There was also another a problem that once she decided to testify, and incidentally, I don't think her lawyer wanted her to testify. I think her lawyer was quite surprised when at the last minute she insisted on testifying. And it ended up causing, there were some things she had told the FBI uh, when she was in custody and when she was trying to negotiate, you know, maybe pro she was proffering she wanted to maybe get a favorable guilty plea. And she said a couple of things, one of which hurt her and one of which hurt Kelly Meggs, a, a co-defendant. She said, well, first of all, she had never told the FBI this theory that she, she thought the certification had already occurred. 
so which was her main defense. An- another thing is she had said that as soon as she got in the stack that day, she knew they were going in to the Capitol. She knew they had the numbers and the force, the, uh, people to force their way in. So that incidentally is sufficient. You know, a conspiracy can be, you can join a conspiracy late in the game. It doesn't have to be premeditated. So that was damaging to her as far as at least the conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and to prevent the congressmen from discharging their duties or to force the congressmen away from the place where they need to perform their duties. That's part of that that third conspiracy statute. She also incriminated her co-defendant Megs to the FBI because she remembered him saying afterwards, we stormed the Capitol, we're standing firm, and we're going to hold the Capitol all night, which sounds pretty um, incriminating and I think conspiratorial. The third guy was this guy, Tom Caldwell, who's the one that tells a lot of weird stories. On direct, he talked about his physical problems and, you know, he, he has a back problem. He w- usually walks with a cane. He has some fused vertebrae, full disability. And uh, he broke down crying at the end, talking about when he was arrested and he was afraid the FBI was going to shoot his wife. And um, so that might have done him some good. He too took the position that when he heard Pence had betrayed us, he thought the certification was done and gone. On cross, he had a lot of problems with uh, the things he had said and his wife had said. He was on the west side of the Capitol, outside, but he got all the way up to on top of the inaugural scaffolding, which is uh, pretty far to go without, he did not have a cane that day. And he said, well, I take oxymorphone, the opioid, and I took a double dose and I was able to do all this. And his wife at the on the top, they made a videos and his wife had done a video and it said, Congress is gone because they are pussies. And so to begin with, that sounds like they understood Congress had fled, not that they were done, uh, that they had fled because they had been uh, driven out, they had ha- been evacuated. And then she said, we've gone through tear gas and smoke bombs and rubber bullets, and we're here. So it sounded like she understood violence was going on. She said, uh, he, he and her, she testified also, they said, well, we heard that in the crowd, we didn't witness any violence ourselves. And then later, you know, that evening on January 6th, 7.38 p.m., He wrote to all of his friends back in Virginia, and he said, Sharon and I roll, and of course, this is where he he clearly is embellishing, but still, it does not sound very remorseful. Uh, And by 7.38 p.m., people knew what had happened on January 6th. She said, Sharon and I rolled with the Oath Keepers. Cops out of nowhere started throwing flashbangs and tear gas to kids' groups. Then we heard Pence fucked us. Then the lying media said Trump supporters were breaking through the barricades. So I said, if we're going to get blamed, might as well do it. So I grabbed my American flag and said, let's take the damn Capitol. 
So people started surging forward and climbing the scaffolding outside. So I said, let's storm the place and hang the traitors. People in front of me broke through the doors and started duking it out with the pigs who broke and ran. Then we started stealing the cops' riot shields and throwing fire extinguishers through windows. It was a great time. So a lot of those details are true, of course, in terms of what did happen that day. It's not necessarily true he was doing them, but it sounds like they were pretty close. They might have understood there was violence at the time. And at that point, he actually began to say things that were so implausible that it's hard to tell what he was doing. I thought he was lying in a defiant way, in a way as to say, F you prosecutors, F you this whole sham legal system. Because he began to, you know, they would ask him about these and he'd say, well, what I meant was it was a new beginning. What I meant was it was a time for healing. And it was just puzzling what he was doing at that point. Yeah, when I, when I said it was a great day, we, we pushed the pigs back and they fled. What I meant is it's a new beginning and a time for healing. Yeah, so it was really, I thought it, it was pretty, pretty bad for him. Now, I, I still think the evidence against him is not strong, and you can sort of not like him or his wife and still think maybe there's not a proof beyond a reasonable doubt. One last example of this, and it's sort of peripheral, but a friend that night, or maybe, no, two days later, a friend sent him that video we all saw, remember the demonstrators heckling Lindsey Graham at the airport? Um, a couple days later, they were calling him a traitor because he had voted to approve the election. And so one of his friends sent him this and Caldwell responded saying something about, well, uh, that basically he was getting what he deserved. We all know what happens to traitors, what, you know, what, what they deserve, meaning alluding to execution. And so he was asked about this and he said uh, the, the protesters were actually criticizing Graham for certain judicial appointments he'd approved and, and not it had nothing to do with the certification. So, you know, at that point, you, you, re, you really wondered what, what's going on is was he just saying F you to the prosecutors on the stand in front of the jury, and maybe F you to the jurors. I'm not sure. All right, before we wrap, how were the closing arguments? They were very good. All of the defendants hammered home the fact that there was no plan, and I think that's their defense. Uh, that's the viable defense. And you do wonder, uh, I, I think I've told you before, it, there's a sense of to me, of the uh, dog that catches the car, the barking dog that runs after the car and catches it and doesn't know what to do. These guys were uh, big talkers talking about revolution, talking about civil war. There they are. And suddenly the Proud Boys break in. <laughs> and it's sort of like, well, what do we do? And they sort of had to go in. You do wonder uh, with everyone except Rhodes, uh, and 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 maybe a second guy who wasn't charged here named Joshua James, whether they would uh, otherwise uh, have gone in. And and so 
if you're steeped in these cases and you know you've seen 900 other people go into the capital these aren't the most serious charges you know they don't assault the police the way a lot of these guys do some of them just walk around aimlessly and go out which would be normally a misdemeanor so uh that was where they focused and i think that was the right place to focus and then the 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 government said look just believe your eyes believe your ears uh, they were talking about sedition they get the opportunity they go in read the jury instructions that's sufficient so the jury has the case it was a long trial. I expect you know, your description of it sounds complicated. I expect the jury will be out for a while. I think so. Uh, just, you know, yeah, you have 10 counts, five defendants who are not all similarly situated. I think it's a pretty complicated thing. It's a, a fairly complicated jury verdict form. If they do convict on seditious conspiracy, they have to be unanimous as to which kind of seditious conspiracy. Is it opposing by force the authority of the United States? Is it uh, using force to prevent, hinder, and delay the execution of the laws of the United States? I think it'll take a while. Uh, so they'll, they'll deliberate today, Tuesday. Then they will break Wednesday before Thanksgiving, come back November 28th, Monday. And I I would be surprised if they have a verdict before Tuesday the 29th. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's later than that. Well, we will have you back when they come back to chew over the verdict. Roger Parloff, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer is the one, the only Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You know, unlike some of Ian's production teams, we're not going to be pulling this episode of the Lawfare Podcast off of Apple Podcasts. If you don't know what that refers to, I'm just going to leave it hanging there and you can go figure it out. Hey, folks, you need to do your part to support the Lawfare podcast and support Goat Rodeo in its fight to keep its other podcasts up online. So become a material supporter of Lawfare, which enables you to derivatively become a material supporter of Goat Rodeo. You can do that at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast's editor is Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.